0: You can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six. and We're making a little headway here as we weave our way through the book of Romans. We're in part five of a little mini series called "Our New Life in Christ," and uh, I just want to read our text for today, and, and we'll be touching on a couple things and. Uh, We probably won't get through the whole outline, just so you know that. But um, Romans chapter 6, I want to begin there in verse uh, 10, actually. Romans chapter 6, verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And this is our text for today, verse 11. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus We looked at uh, two realities the last couple of weeks, actually. Uh, one of those realities being that we are dead to sin as Christians. We are dead to sin, the Bible says. Um, it doesn't mince any words. It, it means just what it says, that we are dead to sin. And the second reality is that we are alive to God. And both of those can be found uh, there in verse 11. And we looked at the idea to overcome sin, we have to know that we are totally identified with Christ in the likeness not only of his death, but also of his resurrection. And so we've been studying this for several weeks now, and I asked you at the very beginning to be patient with me as we make our way through this, because we're probably going to raise a lot more questions at first than we answer. Well, we're getting to the part now where we can answer some of those questions, um, We've been looking at this doctrine up to this point concerning what God has done for us in salvation. What does it mean to have this new life in Christ? How does that relate to us? And now, for the very first time almost, we kind of pass over this ridge of doctrine and we begin to touch on things that are very, very practical. Um, We've studied these detailed doctrines, of justification by faith, by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, and now we're moving on to the aspect of not justification but sanctification. And uh, the last couple of weeks we've we've looked at what this what this really means, and here in our text uh, today we're going to find out that that Christ really um, points out to us through the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul points out to us what we are to know and what we are to consider. We've talked about that. But how real this truth is. And so before we actually get into the text, I wanted to share with you just a couple principles concerning sanctification what sanctification is, what sanctification is not. I think it's very important to understand that, first of all, coming out of the gate. And so this is kind of like an overview of where we're going to be going the rest of the message and even next week. And so the the principles of sanctification that I want you to acknowledge there in your outline, the first one is sin is not dead in Christians. We are dead to sin. But sin is not dead in Christians. Even the most mature and pious Christians, it's something that we always have to struggle against. Um, And we need to emphasize that. Because there's a tension here. We've talked about how there's not two yous. There's not an old self and a new self. There's not a new man and an old man. If you're in Christ, the old man is dead. He's buried. He's rendered useless. You don't have to listen to him anymore. And so it's important that we understand this first principle of sanctification, that sin is not dead in Christians. But Christians are dead to sin. Um, I mean, when you stop and think about it, there's no point in telling us not to offer our bodies to sin as instruments of wickedness, as what he offers in various scriptures there, but rather offer them to God as instruments of righteousness, unless there's a tendency to do the first. Paul wouldn't warn us to say, hey, be careful you don't offer your body as an instrument of wickedness or unrighteousness. He wouldn't even bring that up if it wasn't a possibility. He's talking to believers here. The reason we have to fight against sin is that because we are what? We're sinners. That's <laughs> who we are. Now, I understand before God we're declared righteous, but practically we don't sense that yet. We don't taste that yet. We're still living here in this sin-stained world, in this sin-stained body, and we've got to deal with sin each and every day. Secondly, there are some people who tend to think that somehow as a Christian they can be perfect. They claim that sin is not an issue in their life anymore. I remember one man telling me, oh, I, I got saved, you know, 15 years ago. And sin's been eradicated from my life. I thought, what do you mean eradicated? That's, well, I don't de- deal with sin anymore. So I said, do you never sin? Nope, not since I've been saved. I said, well, you know what? You just did because you're lying to me. I mean, that's just the plain simple truth. You can't be perfect. You can't be declared, make yourself sinless. You still have to deal with sin. And it's, it's the, the doctrine of perfectionism as a Christian is not only wrong because it's, it says so in Scripture... But even the people that claim this end up dealing with sin to some degree. So it's not a reality. So we need to understand, first of all, that when we talk about our sanctification, we're not talking about sinless perfection. Secondly, we have to understand that sin's hold on us happens through our bodies. That's how sin has a grasp on us. And remember, these are only just overviewing points. We're going to get into this a little later on in the message and and even next week. But it's very important that we understand this. When I say here that sin's hold on us is through our bodies, I do not mean that sin is in our bodies as opposed to being in us. As if by saying that it is our bodies we are claiming that we are not sinners. Or that sin is only external to us. No, sin is, as uh, John Owen says, sin is not something we do. Sin is who we are. Sin is what we are. It's, it's, it's at the very root of who we are. But here's the point. So far as the new man about whom Paul has been writing here is concerned, that new creature I have become in Christ We understood, and we've we've been teaching this for weeks now, that we've been taken out of Adam, and now we have been translated into Christ. We are in Christ. We've been joined with Christ. We're one with Christ. And that new man, that's why the salvation is, is a transformation. It changes us. The old man is dead. It's buried. The new man is dead to sin. So that sin's hold is no longer actually on me, but it's on my body. (laughs) That may sound a little confusing, but it, it makes sense in a little while. And he says there in verse 12 of our text, Let not sin therefore reign where? In your mortal body. Why? Because it's dead. The new you is dead to sin. Don't let, you don't have to go down that road. The body of our flesh is that which is, is dying. And he goes on and he refers to different members of our body. And it's not that the body is evil, I don't want you to think that. The body itself is not sinful. It's, it's the way that sin fleshes itself out is through our body. Think of it this way. One day, when we will be transformed, we will be transformed and have our glorified body. Guess what? We won't have to deal with sin anymore. We'll be free from the bondage. We'll be free from the effect. We'll be free from everything that sin has to deal with because we'll have a glorified body that, that doesn't translate We'll not be affected by sin. Incredible. So sin's hold on us is because of our fleshly body. That's why it has a hold on us. One day we'll be freed from that. Thirdly, sin can reign in or dominate our bodies, even as Christians. When I say you're dead to sin, the old man is dead, it's buried. It doesn't mean that sin doesn't have some activity in your In your life. When we become in Christ, when we become a new creature in Christ, that new me will always abhor sin. It will always yearn for righteousness. That's why when we sin as a Christian, are we gleeful? Are we, wow, great, I get to sin? No. What? The Spirit convicts our hearts and we feel convicted. We feel uneasy. The Bible says if you don't confess your sin, you're going to toss and turn in your bed at night. You're not going to be able to get a good night's sleep. Why? Because you haven't confessed your sin, you haven't admitted it to God. God's purpose for the believer through sanctification is to make us holy, to make us more like His Son. And it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen one day you're in Adam, one day you're in Christ. Positionally, that's true. But practically, what happens? That sin still affects our lives. And if we don't rein it in, it will rein us, us in. I've talked to many Christians that are enslaved to sin. And it's a horrible place to be in because you know. That you don't have to be there. You're choosing to be there. So sin can reign in or dominate our bodies. That's why Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He wouldn't have to say that if it wasn't a possibility. Fourthly, sanctification has to deal with this. The principle of sanctification is, although sin can reign in or dominate our bodies, it does not need to. That's where the freedom comes in. In other words, although it is is possible for us to offer the parts of our body to sin as instruments of wickedness, we don't need to do this. As believers, for the first time, we're free to do something in the eyes of God that is right. Because we're joined to Christ. We have this new life within And we have his power through the power of the Holy Spirit available to us. Augustine's phrase, he said this. As a non-believer, I was not able not to sin. But as a believer, for the first time, I am able not to sin. We often do sin. That's why Paul is urging us to yield our bodies to righteousness and not to wickedness. The idea is we don't any longer need to do that. We have an alternative for the first time. And then the fifth point here, as far as the principle of sanctification, and like I said, these are all overview points. These are kind of points that we'll be looking at in the coming weeks. It leads to the last and positive truth. As Christians... We can now offer the parts of our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. For the first time, we can offer ourselves to God knowing that he will not condemn us. Not because we have a righteousness of our own, (laughs) but as we've studied, simply because Christ's righteousness was placed upon us when we trusted Him for salvation, when we came to the cross and we said, you know what, I acknowledge the cross. I acknowledge the work that God has done through Christ on the cross for me. I acknowledge the fact that I don't have to die for my own sin, that I don't have to pay the penalty for my own sin, nor am I under the power of that sin any longer. And it's all because what Christ did on the cross. The fact that He went to the cross as a Sinless Lamb of God and paid for the penalty, the sin, of all those who would ever place their trust in him for salvation. He paid it completely. Totality. There's nothing else that needs to be done. That's why when we come to this table, the communion table, and we eat the bread and we drink the juice... We don't do that thinking somehow when we're doing this, this is earning us salvation. This isn't a means of God's grace. This is simply two emblems that represent what Christ did for us. And it's very important that we understand that. I talked to one believer one time and and they said, Wow, you know, I'm just kind of feel convicted and uh, I think I might be. I might be losing my salvation. <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, you know, I go to church, but I just don't feel right about taking communion. So I haven't taken communion in years. I'm like, well, why don't you feel right about taking communion? Well, I got some issues. And, <laughs> and I said, well, if you think that just eating some bread and drinking some juice is going to get you salvation, you're going down the wrong path. This isn't a means to grace. This is simply an affirmation that you have already partaken of God's grace, that you understand that God has saved you, that God through Christ has paid the penalty of your sin. And when you come to this table, you're obeying what Jesus Christ said to do. Do this in remembrance of me until I come. You know, we do it once a month. The Bible says do it as often as you can. You know, you can do this at home. You don't need a church to do this. This is simply maybe you and your wife getting together and saying, you know what, we want to remember the, the death of Christ. And, and, you know, you get some matzo, you get some leavenless bread, bread without any leaven, and you get some juice, and, and you have communion. You can do it every day if you want to do. Now, some people do it so often that it becomes ritualistic, right? I grew up in a church like that every. Sunday, there was a Mass. Every Mass, there was communion, and you just kind of went through it. You didn't understand what was going on. You just kind of did it. Well, that's not good either. It should hold a special place in our heart, but don't think that you can only do it here, and you can only do it once a month. You can do it as often as you remember to do it. That's really what he wants us to do. But it's interesting to me that Paul brings up the fact of our bodies... This sanctification process happens, takes place through our bodies. What do we do with our bodies then? I mean, he's really talking about our body, not our our soul here. He says that in your flesh, in your fleshly body, I mean, when you think of the body, what do you think of? The first thing I think of is the mind. The mind is part of the body. I mean, we're really... Largely defined by what goes on up here in our minds. That's why in Romans chapter 12, if you turn over there, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your, what, bodies. Remember, it's not the body that is the problem. It's sin that utilizes the body. So he's saying, Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then he says this, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. See, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The problem with a lot of believers is they're so confused about God's will, their mind's all messed up. That's why it's so important when we come together as the body of Christ that we're not just up here talking about five happy points to a happy marriage or something. You know, we're talking about God's word. We're talking about truth. We're talking about doctrine. We're talking about settling our minds on what is a firm foundation of truth that we can build our Christian lives on. The problem with so many churches is they think, well, doctrine's boring and, you know, people won't sit there and, and listen to somebody go on and on for an hour about doctrine. So we're just going to do a little skit and then we'll sing some songs and then the pastor can do a little devotion and that's it. Well, what do you end up with? You end up with anemic Christians. You end up Christians that, with Christians that aren't being fed, that, that are not understanding fundamental, foundational truths of doctrine. And it all begins in the mind. Think about your ears. Think about your eyes. Because the mind's not the only part of the body. We receive impressions from the world through our eyes, through our ears. If you think about back in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, it talks about Achan. Do you remember Achan? He was an Israelite soldier. Who participated in the Battle of Jericho under Joshua? But what did he do? He disobeyed God's command not to take any of the spoils, but rather dedicate them to God. And it tells us in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, when he confessed, he said this When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing. Fifty shekels, I coveted them, and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. What happened to Achan? Achan got stoned. He got stoned because of his sin. But what caused his sin? His his sin was caused by the lust of his eyes. 1 John 2.16 tells us that. We have to be careful what we put in front of our eyes, beloved. Aiken's eyes became instruments of wickedness instead of instruments for his growth and holiness. And it's no different today. Some sociologists tell us that by the age of 21, the average young person has been bombarded by 300,000 commercial messages all arguing from the identical basic assumption, personal gratification is the dominant goal in life. We have to be careful what we put in front of our eyes. We have to be careful what goes into our ears. I mean, how are we going to grow in constant, uh, any consistency in godliness if we're constantly watching something that is not edifying to the Lord? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating some kind of, you know, go live in a monastery somewhere and cut all the cables and, you know, that kind of... That may be good for some of you, to be honest. But you know what? I like sports. I like news. I'll watch TV as a way to relax. But you have to monitor it. You have to be careful. And I'm not just talking about The input that you're getting from that, I'm talking about even the time frame. I mean, on a lazy afternoon, I can blow away a couple hours quickly (laughs) watching a ball game or watching golf or watching football or, you know, watching a cop show or watching something. (laughs) And pretty soon the time's gone. can never get that time back. We have to be careful. One simple goal might be for us to spend as many hours studying your Bible, and praying, and going to church as you do watch TV. At least then you'd have an equal input. I guarantee you it's lopsided the other way right now. We need to be aware of that. How about our tongues? Our tongue is also part of the body. What do we do with it? What we do with it is rather important. James, the Lord's brother, uh, thought very much about the tongue... And he said in in James chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, he wrote this, The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. That's what James had to say about the tongue. We have to be careful how we use our tongue. We have to be careful what we say, how we say it. I've learned that the hard way over years of ministry. Because sometimes I'll just say something someone's response, and it won't be graceful, it won't be anything, it'll be factual, it won't be lying to the person, but I didn't necessarily say it in the best way that I could have said it. And a lot of times my attitude has been, oh, grow up. But that's not the right attitude to have. Okay, I'm the one that needs to grow up and be more sensitive to the people who need that kind of sensitivity. And then you think of our hands and our feet. Our hands, our feet determine what we do, where we go. So when we're considering how we might offer the parts of our body to God's, God is instruments of righteousness. We can't forget about our hands and our feet. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 to 12, Paul writes about using our hands profitably. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. Those are two good exhortations in themselves. But then he says this, and to work with your hands. Just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Good words of wisdom. Also, over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul writes this. He says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Our hands are to be used as a blessing, not just for us, but for other people. How about our feet? Over in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 15, Paul says this, How? Then will they call on him whom they have not believed. Talking about the gospel here. And how are they to believe in him who have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let me ask you, where do your feet take you? On a daily basis journey? Do they take you to places maybe they shouldn't? Do your hands do things that maybe they shouldn't be doing? Are they not being used for God's glory? Your mind, your tongue? See, this is his point here when he gets to verse 11 and 12. When he says 12 in verse 12 there, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. He's basically saying, you know what? This is your default, but you need to stop it. That's what he's saying. He's simply saying, stop it. He's not mincing any words. He's saying, if you're a new person in Christ, you need to stop this kind of behavior. Okay, that's that's kind of a comedic way of saying to us what Paul is saying to us here in this text. He really is. He's saying in verse 12, stop letting sin reign in your mortal bodies. That's what he's saying. And in some ways, Paul's command to those struggling with this life-dominating sin sounds kind of like what his counsel was to that poor lady that thought she would be buried in a box. Alive in a box. (laughs) He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its lusts. In other words, stop it. Stop it. And then he says at the end there in verse 14, for sin shall not be a master over you. He gives this Blanket promise. What he's saying is stop sinning and obey God. Because sin shall not be a master over you. So many Christians go through their Christian's life struggling with something they don't need necessarily to struggle with. Because they don't understand the basic truth that the old man is dead and buried That we don't have to be dominated by sin. For the first time in our lives, we're free to do what God calls us to do. Well, how do we stop it? Sounds like simple counsel, but how do we do this? Well, he says, don't let sin reign by following your lusts, but give yourself to God to live righteously under his grace. The first point in your outline, to apply these commands, you have to apply and understand the truths of Romans 1 through chapter 6. Now, we've been in Romans for, I think it's 46 messages today, or 45 messages, 46 messages today. And he says there in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign. Well, what are you saying, Paul? He's saying basically because of everything I told you up to this point, sin does not have to be a reigning dominion, a power in your life. If you've not understood and personally applied the truths that we've learned up to this point, it's going to be futile to try to apply the commands that we see here in verses 12 and 13. You're not going to get it. I mean, let's just recap some of the points that we've learned. First of all, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you're sitting here today, please understand, you're a sinner just like I'm a sinner. Just like the person next to you is a sinner. There's no getting around that. The good news is, is that God has given us a way to deal with that. Finally, once for all, When Jesus hung on the cross and it was over, he said, it is finished. He had victory over sin. He had victory over death at his resurrection. God did not leave us under his judgment. He provided a way to preserve his justice and yet to justify sinners. And he did that by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to bear the penalty that we deserve. Because of our sin. And God now graciously justifies the ungodly person who does not work for his salvation. You can't. But rather believes in the work that Jesus did as his sin bearer. And the result of that is a reconciled relationship, a restored relationship with your creator God. As I said previously, before we were all identified in Adam, now we're identified in Christ. Having received God's free gift of salvation, we're united with Christ, we're made one with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. And we won't fully experience that, beloved, until either we go to Him or He returns to us. And in the meantime, whenever we're tempted to sin, what? Paul is saying in verse 11 that we have to consider ourselves dead to sin, to reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. John Murray said this in his epistle to the Romans, his commentary. He said, To say to a slave, don't behave like a slave, is to mock his slavery. But to say to a freed slave... Don't behave as a slave is to encourage him to act in the light of his new freedom. I mean, to say to a person outside of Christ, stop sinning, is futile. It's ridiculous. Why would you say that? They can't. We shouldn't hold the same standard for someone who doesn't know Christ that we would for someone who does. But when we say, that to someone who has trusted Christ, who's been freed from their sin, then there's some meaning behind it. It's helpful. And the commands that Paul gives us here in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, they're not going to make any sense at all to you unless you are in Christ by the virtue of being justified by faith alone. In Christ alone. Grace. That's the only way this is going to make any sense. Now we know by the time we get to verse 11 here in our text. And we've been studying this. That we have died and we've risen again. In Christ. Because we're joined with Christ. That's what we've been studying. We've already taken care of that in the first 10 verses of Romans chapter 6. We've studied it in depth. And now, we learn here in these verses, 11-14, to that having been raised from the dead with Christ, and having experienced in our position victory over death as to its penalty and its power, victory over sin as to its penalty and its power, we're now ready to move on and live to the fullness of life. We're living a holy life for God. Last week, when we were talking about Jesus being raised from the dead, I couldn't help but think of the account of Lazarus. It's a wonderful illustration of this truth that the Lord gave us in the Gospel of John. You remember, where Lazarus was in the grave for four days. He was dead. He was so dead, it says in 11, John eleven thirty nine, that when they were going to go to the grave and Jesus finally showed up and said, hey, take the stone away, Lazarus' sister said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has already been dead four days. But Jesus came, and he demanded, in spite of her protest, that the grave be opened. And we all know what happened. He spoke the word, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus rose from the grave, and he walked out. And this is the part of the story that gets interesting for us as Christians. In verses 43 and 44 of John 11, it says this, When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Verse 44, the man who had died came out, Listen, his hands and his feet were bound with linen stripes, strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. In other words, he was mummified. He was buried. So he came out, and here I am, you know. I mean, it's kind of a comical thing if you think about it. This guy comes out, he's all tied up, and Jesus says, what are you looking at? Unbind him. Let him go. That has an incredible analogy for us as believers. I mean, so many times I'll talk to Christians who seem to still be bound up. God raised them from the dead, but they're still bound in their sin. They still have their grave clothes on. And the Lord would say to us, get off those clothes. Get off those Those linen claws be loosed, be free. We need to shed our grave clothes as believers. We've been raised in newness of life from the dead. We walk in the newness of that life, beloved. We need to get rid of everything that ties us to that deadness. We sing a song, a little phrase on the amazing grace. It says, my chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns on ending love, amazing grace. Do we really believe that when we sing that song? Do we really believe the scripture when it says you're dead to sin? Sin does not have to reign in your mortal body. How do we really strip these grave clothes off. If you look over at 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted of oh, the Lord is what the Lord is good. When you stop and you think about that, how are you going to do that? How do you just you just kind of is it just a mind game? You just figure out, okay, I just gotta have a, a battle of the wills here and I gotta outlast my sin. I mean, we have to understand that God has called us. To a peculiar life. He's called us to a life of holiness. He's called us to a life of holiness in not only our position before God as he justifies us. But also in our practice. Well, how is that possible? Well, we've looked at this and we've seen here even in Romans 6 over and over. We've talked about this. He uses the word no. No. Verse 3, he says, do you not know that you've been baptized into Christ? Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. And death no longer has dominion over him. All the verses that we've been looking at in Romans 6, and really in Romans in its entirety up to this point, have been doctrinal, foundational truths. And Paul is saying, now you need to build upon these truths. There's a purpose in Paul sharing all this doctrine with us. And so when we get to chapter 6, verse 11... When he says, so you must consider. In other words, in summary of everything here, this is the conclusion. Having all these things settled in your mind. Now, let's get to the practical. You can't come to verse 11 without the first 10 verses. It just doesn't fit. In Scripture, you have to remember that when the Bible tells us to do something, it's not just something random. When it tells us to do something, it's always based on a doctrine. It's always based on a truth. God doesn't just exhort us to do something in a vacuum, (laughs) Like, "Ah, I think I want you to do this for this reason. Yeah, whatever. I don't have any reason for it, but just go ahead and do it. No. There's always a purpose. God's truth is precept upon precept. It's built on a divine truth. And what Paul is saying is because all this is true, this now is how you need to behave. Well, what has been this doctrine that we've looked at? Well, first of all, that we've been united with Christ. When he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he rose from the dead, we rose from the dead. When he walks in newness of life after his resurrection, so we walk in newness of life. Paul's saying, basically, that since we're united with Christ in his death... That we too have fulfilled the penalty for sin. Because we're united with Christ. We have risen with Christ in his resurrection. Therefore we walk in the newness of life. Every demand of the law has been met. Every demand of sin was met. The power of sin has been conquered. Christ will never die again. That's what he says there in in verse 9 and verse 10. And because he will never die again, guess what? We will never die again. We're alive in Christ. Because his death so effectively conquered sin, we died that death with him. Not only is the penalty paid, but the power of sin is broken. And this is a fundamental truth that a lot of Christians don't understand. That sin no longer has to have dominion over us as believers. We can now live a new life in Christ. We're a new creation, a new man, a new nature. We're not what we used to be. There's not the new man and the old man, and every morning you wake up and, oh, who am I going to listen to? And you've got to live this schizophrenic Christian life. That's not what we're called to. It says the old man is dead, it's buried, it's gone. And I think that we have to understand and remind ourselves that it's because that we know this truth, that's what gets us to the next step. Remember in the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, said the people of God were all destroyed Because of their lack of what? Knowledge. Their lack of knowledge. Not their lack of dedication. Not their lack of consecration or commitment or anything else. No. But their lack of knowledge. You'll never be able to live as, as God tells you to live if you don't know about it. Even in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says this, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just and pure and lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. What's he saying? You need to count on what is true. Don't believe the lie. Even over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. He talks about putting off anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy communication, all these things. He says, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and the old man has been put off, rendered useless. And you have put on a new man. Then he says this, which is renewed in knowledge. It's so important that we understand that. You cannot function on what you don't know. What do we know up to this point? We know that we do not have to be prey to sin's power, we know that the power of sin has been broken. We know that we don't have to fall victim to it. We know for certain that it cannot force us to do that which is against God. That's what we know. Those are facts. And so in verse 11, he says, Because of this, because of your knowledge, then you need to consider this or reckon this. Reckon yourself dead to sin. See, the word know deals with the mind, right? It's a fact. We know this cognitively. This is what the Bible says. Either you believe it or you don't. But the word consider that we've looked at even last week deals with the heart. One deals with the mind. One deals with the heart. You know it to be so intellectually, and now you have to believe it to be so. You act on it. Logizomai, that was the word. You could simply translate it, you affirm the truth that you know. The Bible says that we're dead to sin, it no longer is a power in our life. We need to affirm that. We need to believe that. When I was studying this week, John MacArthur in his commentary pulled out five good points, or four good points, I think it was. And he asked the question at this point in the study well, why is this so difficult for Christians to understand? If this is something that we know and this is something that we should affirm, why are we still dealing with sin? Why is this hard to accept? First of all, he says many of them do not realize that this marvelous truth simply because they've never heard of it. <laughs> and I've touched on this last week. I mean, I grew up in Bible college being taught, you know, after you become a Christian, now there's a war. There's this major war going on, and it's up to you to depend on who wins the war every day. Are you going to listen to your old nature? Or are you going to listen to your new nature? It's all up to you, Steve. Wow. So when somebody shared with me, you know what, the old you is dead. It's not only dead, it's buried, it's rendered useless. That theology may not be correct, what you're saying. And when I began to look at the scriptures and began to realize, whoa, this is true. It changed my whole life, my Christian life. It changed the whole way that I interacted See, some people think that salvation brings this, just this transaction, this forensic holiness because of their trust in Christ. And now God just kind of regards them as holy, but nothing else changes in their life. (laughs) They still sin, they do all that, but God has justified them. He's, He's counted them holy, so our position before God is one of holiness, but he would never expect us to live a holy life practically here on earth. Because, you know, we have this old nature and we're going to give into it, and 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 it just kind of plays into a sinful Christian life. And I would say that their idea of salvation is more one of addition. You know, you have the old self, and now you're born again, and now you have the new new self. So you have the old self and the new self. This is the new you. The schizophrenic Christian. Who am I going to listen to? I don't know. That's not what God's Word says. God's Word says that He takes the old old you, and what does He do? He transforms it. He changes it. Miraculously. Into the new you. The old you is buried. It's gone. What What a blessed truth if we can just get a handle on that. There's so many Christians, even today, they're dealing with guilt and sin, and they don't have to. But because they've been taught wrongly, they think, well, you know, that's where God's grace comes in. And right back to verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Yeah, sounds good to me. That's the first reading. Maybe you've never been taught that. Secondly, Christians often find it hard to believe because that they're actually free from this power of sin. And he points out properly, he says, because maybe Satan does not want you to believe it. (laughs) We do have an enemy out there. He doesn't want you to live up to your potential. If the enemy of our souls and the accuser of the brethren as we know him wants to make us think that we're still dominated by sin in our earthly lives, and, well, we just can't help ourselves, and that's just kind of the normal Christian life. What's he do? He weakens our, our resolve to live any kind of holy life. I mean, I don't know about you, but if it was, if it was up to me whether I could live a holy life based on my, my new you or a sinful life on my old you, and both of them were active, I'd probably listen to the old one every time. The third reason, he says, is not only because you've never been taught, or maybe it's just hard to believe because you see this Satan not wanting you to believe it, but thirdly, he says this, Christians often find it difficult to believe that they are free from sin's compulsion and that it's the reality of the new birth Because salvation is not experiential. Listen to this. Salvation is not experiential. What do I mean? It's not physically observable. It's not verifiable. If God saved me and you looked at me, you probably wouldn't tell the difference. I don't have a halo around my head. My face isn't glowing. Redemption is a divine spiritual transaction that may or may not be accompanied by a physical or emotional experience. I'm sure we could go around the room today, beloved, and we could ask, How did you get saved? Oh, yeah, this is what happened, whatever. And some of us would have incredible stories. Some of them would be very emotional, some of them would not. When I got saved, I was sitting at a dinner table over dessert. And the pastor kept pointing to Romans 3.23. Oh, I've sinned. All oh, I've sinned. All oh, I've sinned. For like an hour. And I just couldn't get it through my head. And finally, it's like God turned the light switch on. And I said, well, oh, that must mean me. Yeah. Hello. Well, what do I need to do? Well, you need to trust Christ for your salvation. Well, why wouldn't I do that? I don't know. Well, let's do it. Okay. Boom. I wasn't weeping for hours on the floor. It was a very factual thing for me. Well, this, I need to do this, and he did that for me, so I need to trust in that. This is the way it is. There was very little emotion attached to it. But that's just who I am. You may have a different experience. You know, we've all prayed with people to come to Christ and and maybe they were just bawling their eyes out and then, you know, we see them three weeks later and they're living for the devil more than they did before. We can't base someone's salvation on an experience. It's something that divinely happens in their life. We don't physically experience dying with Christ. I'm kind of thankful for that, actually. We can't experience the burial. We can't experience being raised. We have to take it by faith because that's what the Bible says. So when he says consider, it's, it's, it's the idea that this is a, a step of faith. It may not make sense. That's okay. There's a lot of things in the Bible that don't make sense. But because the Bible says they're true, I have to believe them. Let me tell you about people with great faith. People with great faith can accept the fact of the Word of God without having to turn to some external proof. I mean, it sounds trite, but you know what? God said it. That settles it for me. See, the people who are always running around looking for signs and wonders, they don't have great faith. They don't have any faith. They have very little faith. They're looking for some kind of phenomenal reality, you know, to kind of relate to their spirituality. Just take what God says, apply it to your life, and say, you know what, this is true. I'm going to live this way. So, salvation is not experiential. The fourth point, he points to, and this is probably the most common reason why Christians find it hard to believe that they are freed from sin's power while they're still here on earth, is because they're still in a battle with sin every day. (laughs) If they have a new holy disposition and sin's control has truly been broken, they wonder, he writes, he says this, why are they still so strongly tempted? And why do they often succumb to that temptation? I mean, the Apostle Paul wasn't any different than us. Look at Romans chapter 7. Man, he says, I'm in a major battle here. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I, do, I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am? Doesn't sound like a happy camper. Why? Because this, this tyranny of sin is going on in his life. There's a struggle going on with sin. And you know what? A lot of times we may lose that struggle but we still have to believe the fact that sin is not a dominating factor in our life because the Bible declares it so. We need to count on that. We need to affirm that. We need to believe that. I mean, there's nothing that could frustrate someone who's come to Christ who thinks himself primarily as a Self-centered sinner, yet your purpose in life is to produce God-centered holiness. I mean, that would be tough. Believing that you're a, a wretched, vile, hopeless sinner under the power of sin continually, and yet you're supposed to live a holy life? Come on, God. That's why Paul says, you know what? You need to consider this. That you're dead to sin. The old man is gone. Count on it. Think of yourself. Your biography is two volumes. The old man and the new man. The old man represents the old nature. The sinful you. The new nature is the new man. The new self. The new creation in Christ. Volume one ended... With my death with Christ. And I'm never going to go back there. Ever. It's impossible. It's inconceivable to reopen volume 1. For a believer. And so coming back to Paul's first verse there. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Definitely no. No. And as we come to the communion table to close our service today, I pray that as believers we would understand that we are not subject to the power and dominion of sin in our lives. Don't use that as an excuse. If you want to go sin, you're on your own. You're sinning because you want to sin. And you're being disobedient before God. And God will deal with you. But we need to understand that we can't blame this on the old you, because the old you is dead and buried. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, as we conclude our service with this communion time, that you would help us to focus on our own lives, our own accountability before you. We thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives that you're leading us in truth, that you're laying a foundation of truth that we can build our lives of holiness upon. None of us are perfect, not one. And yet, Father, I pray that each day we'll be growing more and more like Christ. We'll be growing more and more interested in what His Word says because we know His Word is truth. And, Father, we know that the, the truth that we're focusing on this morning in this communion time is that Christ did come. He lived a perfect life. He was born as a man in a fleshly body, just like ours. And yet he lived a sinless life 30-some years, then he was accused and convicted and hung on a cross to die for the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in him. Lord, we thank you. As we celebrated last week, it didn't end there, but he rose on the third day confirming his victory over sin and death. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we come to this table. We're not... We're not worshiping a dead Savior. God forbid. We're, we're worshiping a Savior who lives continually and will live for all eternity as we will if we have trusted in this work of Christ. I pray for each one here this morning that they would know that this table is for those who put their faith, their trust in Christ. If you've personally trusted Christ for your salvation, if you've cried out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me, save me, Lord. That's a prayer that he'll answer. You'll do that divine transaction, that divine transformation that we've been talking about in your own heart. And you'll no longer be subject to the power of sin. But for the first time, you'll be able to live in a way that's pleasing to your God and your creator. And it's all because of what Christ did on the cross. And Lord, we examine our own lives as your word instructs us to do. Father, as we come to this table, that if there's something... It's not right that we need to come to you in confession. Your word says that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for that truth. And Lord, we pray that you would just bless our communion time together. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.